It's always exciting when the uh, song service preaches the sermon for you before you get up. Uh, thank you for those selections this morning. They, they match our text so beautifully. Uh, if you have your Bibles, turn to Psalm chapter 2. And as you're turning, I want to introduce our text a little bit differently this morning. As we read through Psalm chapter 2, we're going to look at it as a drama, as a miniature drama. And this drama is going to unfold for us uh, in four different scenes. And the psalmist has perfectly organized each scene into three verses for us. In each scene, we're going to see a different voice stepping to the center of the platform to share something with us. And so we're going to use the text as our outline. In scene number one, in verses one through three, we're going to see the rebellion of man. Then the response of God in verses four through six. The rule of Christ in seven through nine. And the remarks of the psalmist is going to wrap up the text this morning. Now, Psalm 2 is one of the first of many messianic psalms in the book which means it's speaking directly of the ultimate king, Jesus. So the the original audience would have heard the Davidic covenant coming across and King David and his eternal line that God had promised. But as you see Psalm 2 used throughout the entire New Testament, it's used seven different times. And each time it's used, it's used in direct relationship to Christ himself. So as we look at the psalm this morning, we're going to think of it and view it in direct reference to Jesus as the king. Let's read this morning, beginning in verse 1. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord says to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possessions. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry with you and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all those who take refuge in him. Let's pray. Father, we do praise you this morning. Father, we come to you in desperate need of your spirit to guide us in your word, to guide us in truth this morning. Lord, may this psalm humble us in light of your greatness and your glory and your power and your omnipotence. God, teach us from your word now. And change our hearts so that we might look more like this king and look more like your son, Jesus. And it is in Jesus' name that we pray this morning. Amen. It begins early 
in childhood and parenting, we know the day is going to come, though we don't exactly know when. And really, when it happens the first time, you're not sure how to respond. Do you laugh? Because it can be funny. Do you get angry? Or do you cry? I'm referring to the first time that you tell your child no. And they look at you with this thoughtful yet defiant look, right? And as they process this very simple command, their, their gaze turns back to the object of their desire. And you can see them thinking. And as they think, you respond with yet another more stern no. And the words no sooner come out of your mouth when this tiny child whom you have brought into the world, whom you have raised, whom you feed and nurture and care for, who's actually completely dependent on you for life, has the audacity. In that moment of their perceived freedom and power to rebel with no fear of your authority of your greatness, of what you can withhold or do to them. The reality of is this this toddler that begins to think this way realizes that they want what they want and they will not be ruled by anyone. This little illustration paints a picture of the people in Psalm 2. It paints a picture of our world today, doesn't it? Our world today wants what they want. They will not be ruled by God or Christ or anyone else. But I think it's also true of us as Christians at times. How often do we, as followers of King Jesus, live with a childlike perception of freedom? As if we have control of our day-to-day lives and decisions. As if we can do what we want and when we want with no regard of who is sovereign. Of who is sitting on the throne and ruling all things in our lives. As we think about Psalm chapter 2, it really is a coronation ceremony of a king in which King Jesus comes onto scene creating a cosmic conflict over the kingdom. And in our text today, the conflict is not between Satan and God, though we know that to be true, but Satan is using the men and the nations and the people of this earth I want us to see that the psalmist is contrasting the fragility and the finiteness of man, of you and I this morning, with the omnipotence and the greatness and the power of God. And we'll see that played out. Let's begin in scene chapter 1, the rebellion of man. The psalmist opens with this rhetorical question, why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? He's, He's not trying to inquire as to why the people are upset. He's saying this in amazement, just as you are shocked and amazed the first time your child says no to you. And if you don't have children, you've seen this happening maybe in the store or the younger sibling or somebody else. The psalmist is shocked because the psalmist has the right view of the king. The psalmist doesn't even name specifically who it is rebelling against God. He keeps it broad. 
The, the scope of the rebellion is worldwide. He just says the rebellion consists of nations and peoples and kings and rulers. Everyone, everyone in the world who is unwilling to submit to the kingship of Jesus that God has already established. Now, as we look at the attitude of the nations, of the people, of our world today, the psalmist uses two very interesting words. He says that the nations rage and the people's plot. And of course, you can see the, the words rage and plot underlined this morning. And when I initially read this, maybe you're like me and you think of rage as being this group of people who've gathered together against God, this angry, raging mob, this turbulent sea, if you will, and they're plotting and creating a plan to overthrow the king. They're loud, they're boisterous. But that's not what the psalmist is saying. When you look at these two words, rage and plot, you learn something interesting. The word rage means unrest. It, we're familiar with the term social unrest when it comes to the government. We see it in our world today, uh, with, especially when election time comes around. And social unrest comes about when large groups of people grow agitated, unhappy with their leadership, with their government. And this is what the people of our world are pictured as here. The nations are at unrest. But then he says plot. And the word plot is true of many words in the Old Testament. It can be used in a positive way or a negative way. So in a negative way in our text today, they're, they're plotting in vain. But in a positive way, you can turn in your Bibles over just one chapter to Psalm chapter 1. And we can see how this exact same Hebrew word is used in Psalm 1, verses 1 and 2. See if you can see the word in verse 2. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor, seats in the seat, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. Do you see the word? The word is meditate. The word plot and the word meditate are the exact same word. And what does that mean? It means to growl, to utter, to, to speak in an undertone voice, under your breath. This is what it means to, think about it, meditate or delight in the law of the Lord. You're thinking about it, you're muttering it, it's on the tip of your tongue all day. What is the psalmist doing here? He's revealing the heart of the world. The heart of the world is at a state of restlessness, of unrest. They're unhappy with the idea that God has established his king, which is Jesus. They're grumbling. They're, there's unrest among them as they plot together, as they grumble and complain about the leadership that is over them. And so verse 2 says that they set themselves, they take a stand they conspire together. But notice the futility of the rebellion. The people are gathering together, and they're identified in that small prepositional phrase, they sit the, of the earth. The psalmist is contrasting that the people live bound to this earth, bound to a location, bound to time, aging and death. He says it's futile, but they're plotting against the Lord. 
Yahweh, the covenant-keeping God of Israel, and his anointed. The rebellion of man here shows us exact, they know exactly who they're rebelling against. Because in verse 3 it says, let us burst their bonds apart. Let us cast away their cords from us. They know they are rebelling against God and the king that God has established. They don't want to walk in obedience to him. They don't want to walk in submission to him, but only themselves. You see, like our toddler, the people of our world today, oftentimes you and I want what we want, and we don't want to be ruled by anyone or anything. And it's frustrating. The world that we live in today lives frustrated because the marks of God's sovereignty is all over the world. And yet they are searching, they're plotting, they're grumbling, they're creating ways to rebel against God. And so the psalmist after the world speaks, after they say, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us, allows God to respond. The people are upset. They, they view the leadership of God and Christ as bondage, as cords. And so God speaks to their rebellion in verses 4 through 6. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. You see the contrast between these two scenes? Man, the world, is pictured as turbulent, violent, angry. They're, they're gathering as many people to their side as they can in hopes that they can create a force powerful enough, large enough to go up against the Almighty. And what is God doing? He's sitting on his throne. And he laughs. He holds them in derision as if mortal man could do anything or gather a large enough group to do anything to overthrow and thwart his decrees. Not only does he laugh, but he holds them in derision. This, this is the creator, sustainer. This is divine sarcasm from God. As he mocks man, as he sits down over them and watches them in a rage, trying to do what they can to have sovereignty over themselves. It's so irrational that God doesn't even get off his throne. He, there's nothing man can do. God is the omnipotent one. In him we find our life and our breath. And after his laughter, God speaks. He will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury. Perhaps our parents here have experienced this even in church. Your kids start to get a little bit older and they want to sit with their friends in church, right? And so... At some point, against your better judgment, you allow this to happen. And what you do, because you have total trust in your child, is you allow them to sit, but then you strategically position yourself somewhere behind them so you can keep an eye on them, right? And so what inevitably happens this first time is your child thinks that 
He's free. He's free from you. Um, he doesn't know you're peering in from a different angle because he can't see you and he's not thinking that strategically. And so the, the sermon begins and you start to hear some things and as you look over you realize your child is goofing off. And he begins to talk louder and now he's making a scene, right? And as you sit there you begin to kindle with anger, right? You could probably use terms such as anger and fury, right, that the psalmist uses. But you can't do anything. You, you choose not to make a bigger scene by getting up and grabbing him and dragging him out the hallway, or her. I just, you know, boys tend to do it more often. Um, and so what happens is your anger is kindling and burning the whole service. You're not worshiping. You're, you are eyeing your child. And here's what happens. You get them in the car, and you finally get a chance to speak. Now, now look back with me at Psalm 2.5. God will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in their fury. So when you get in the car, you speak to your child, and how do you speak to them? You will speak to them out of anger and terrify them with your fury, will you not? And they will know exactly what they have done. This is what God is doing on a cosmic level to mankind. A day will come when he will speak to all those who rebelled against him. And this is what it will feel like. But notice what God says. This, God's not speaking in this gentle, kind shepherd voice. He is thunderous. This is frightening. And he says, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. God says, I have already accomplished the very thing that you are fighting for. My king is set. It's already been done. You can murmur and complain and fight and do whatever it is that you think you can do to gain sovereignty and freedom of your own life. But Jesus is it. I've established it. And so after God speaks to the nations and has confirmed that he himself has set his son on Zion, his holy hill, we transition to scene three, where the psalmist reveals the rule of Christ as the sovereign king. And we have this really cool inter-Trinitarian conversation between God the Son, Yahweh, and God the Father. And Jesus says in verse 7, I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me. The decree is the pronouncement by what right Jesus has to rule. And it's not his own, it's from the Heavenly Father. We see God's heavenly decrees all throughout the Old Testament. And some things that we learn about them is that they were fixed before the foundations of the world. Nothing can thwart them. God has established them. In Isaiah 46, starting the second half of verse 9, it says, I am God and there is no, no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand. That's his decree. My counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purposes. No one can change the decisions that God has made from eternity 
passed. And what did he decree? Psalm says he decreed that Jesus is his son, and today he has begotten you. This idea of sonship is extremely important. We see it used of Jesus throughout the New Testament. In Acts 13, 32, this psalm is quoted directly. And it says, And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus. That's the resurrection of Christ. As also it is written in the second psalm, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. He's begotten of the Father. He shares the exact nature of God the Father. It's divine. It's eternal. It's holy. It's righteous. And because God has established Jesus as this king, in verse 8, Jesus has given the ability to ask anything of God. And God will grant it to him. And notice what God gives him in comparison to scene one and the nations and the kings and the rulers. He says, I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possessions. God's already given all this to Jesus and he is ruling it. And as any good ruler and any good king, Jesus will one day defend, protect his kingdom. And how will he do so? Verse 9, you shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Again, the psalmist bringing out how fragile we are as God's created ones, right? The, the, the Bible compares God to a potter and us as the clay. And Jesus will come and he will judge He's going to judge with a rod of iron, the symbol of strength, this symbol of dominion. This is the scepter with which he is going to judge. And he is going to judge us, mankind, whoever is continuing to rebel against him. And it doesn't take much to realize what a rod of iron will do to an earthen vessel, a potter's vessel, a symbol of weakness throughout the Bible, fragility. If it's just dropped, it's going to crack. It's going to break. It's going to shatter. And yet Jesus is coming with an iron rod. So his destruction will be complete. It will be forever. So why Psalm 1 says the wicked will not be able to stand in the judgment. They will surely perish. Psalm 2 verse 9 is again echoed in Revelation. Revelation chapter 2, it says, The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. He will rule them with a rod of iron. And when the earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father. And we know the events here in Revelation are yet to come. Jesus has come, but he came to die. He came to begin and establish his kingdom here on earth, but he will return to take control of his earthly kingdom. All those that are opposed to Jesus when he returns will be judged, will be shattered. I am thankful that this is not where our drama ends this morning, right? We know that God is a God of love. We know that God is a God of grace, We know that God is a God who wants to draw and call people to himself. 
And so we have the remarks of the psalmist in scene number four. The psalmist makes his final appeal to all those who are raging and plotting against God to submit themselves to his rule. He wants this for us this morning. And the psalmist is going to use the next three verses to address the mind, the heart, and the will of the nations and the peoples and the kings and the rulers. He addresses the mind in verse 10. It says, Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Now, the the kings and the rulers are supposed to be the wise ones. They're the ones that are supposed to help people obey the law and warn people of destruction if they do not. And yet here, the psalmist is calling them to repent of their perceived wisdom. He's saying their wisdom is backwards. Their wisdom is wrong. It echoes Romans 1, does it not? Where Paul says, though they claim to be wise, they are fools. I'm going to read the entire section, 18 through 23, because it gives us this picture of the wrath of God in verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them. This is the same as the peoples in Psalm 2, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks. But they became futile in their thinking, Their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 18 through 21 says, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has God not made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preached to save those who believed. This is what Pastor Joel preached upon last week. The upside-down call of Christ. It doesn't make sense. The, the world, in their own wisdom, do not understand God and the way in which He is bringing people to salvation. Our world boasts of great knowledge and freedom. Freedom to choose even whatever sex you are. Whether you're male or female. We are not given that choice. And it was established by God. To be wise in is to govern your choices by the truth of Scripture. The psalmist says here at the close in verse 10 that I am presenting you with truth that God is sovereign. He has established his son as king. And this king will one day rule and reign. So he provides In God's love and God's kindness, he provides a warning. A warning to repent. A warning to turn 
and allow Jesus to rule their hearts. So in verse 11, the psalmist calls the nations to change the way they think about themselves and God. He summons the heart. He says, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. This is a call to worship. To worship God joyfully, reverently. The heart that is submitted to Christ will reverently serve him, but will also rejoice with trembling, understanding that he is the sovereign, that he is the creator. And God brings joy to the ones who worship him. But finally, the psalmist aims his closing remarks to the will of the people. He says, kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all those who take refuge in him. So kissing in relationship to a king is a sign of professing one's loyalty, one's allegiance to him. The the psalmist is pleading with the nations for a full surrender of their heart and their mind and their will to Jesus. The alternate is total destruction for which they will bear full responsibility if they continue in their rebellion. You see, the message of the gospel is one of hope, one of grace. Yet we must also realize that there is a cosmic conflict taking place in our hearts and our minds right now of who will be king. Who is king of your life right now? The psalmist closes the chapter with hope. Blessed or happy are all those who take refuge in him. What an incredible offering of grace. The nations rage and they plot and they're furious and they want free from the bondage and rule of God. Yet God is prepared to offer forgiveness to all who would turn and trust in him, who would lean on his established king. So as we think about applying this psalm to our life this morning, I want to first address those who are not yet in Christ. Perhaps you're visiting, perhaps you've been visiting for a while, and you identify with the world. You feel this unrest between you and God. The psalm here offers a warning of what will happen to all those who continue in the rebellion. But it also offers the hope of salvation and rescue from your rebellion. Our God is a God of love. He loved us so much that he sent this king, King Jesus, to be wrapped in flesh, to take God the Father's wrath on himself, what we deserved. And Jesus died on the cross so he could bear the full weight and punishment of God's wrath for our sins so that we would not have to live in rebellion any longer that he could indwell us with his spirit and rescue and save us that we might live for him. You see, every one of us in this room were at once the rebels seen in the opening scene of Psalm chapter 2. Every one of us, the Romans 3 says that there's none righteous, not even one. We've all sinned. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. So 
I ask you this morning to understand what the psalmist is saying. God is the righteous creator and has established Jesus to be king over everything. Jesus has paid the full price for our sin. And he will one day come back to rule. And when he does, only those who have repented of their sins will reign with him and live with him in peace. He is offering salvation to you this morning. And believer, be encouraged by this psalm. Jesus will come back one day and end the rebellion of our world. The world that we are living in, that we are frustrated by, the sins in our own hearts and life that we are frustrated by, Jesus will return and take us as his own. So persevere in him. Continue to trust in him. Continue to trust and submit to his rule and his reign in your life. John Calvin, in his commentary on Psalm 2, says this, As often then as the power of man appears formidable to us, let us remember how much it is transcended by the power of God. In these words, there is set before us the unchangeable and eternal purpose of God, effectually to defend, even to the end, the kingdom of his Son, of which he is the founder, and this may well support our faith amidst the troublous the troublous storms of the world. This gives us hope. But finally, as subjects of the king, we must, as Christians, ask ourselves in what areas of our heart, our mind, our will, are we not submitting to Christ? Is he not king of our life? Parents, are you submitting to Christ kingdom and his rule in how you discipline your children? Or is every disobedience an offense against you and you are the king and you are the sovereign? Or is our discipline pointing our children to Jesus and how we administer and how we react and how we respond? Husbands, are you loving your wives? Are you serving them? Or are you the king of your household? Are you ruling your house? Are you living in submission to Christ and loving your wife and serving her? Does the use of your time, your spare time, your recreational time, your time on your phones and electronic devices, do those reflect Christ as your king? Is he ruling those moments? Is he ruling every moment of our day and our life? Are we submitting to that? The call for us this morning is to submit every part of our life to the lordship of Jesus Christ. For he is king, and he is a good king to serve. Let's pray. Father, we praise you that we are not in control. Though we want control so often, though we wake up in the mornings and live life for ourselves so many times, God, we ask that your spirit would rule our hearts and our minds and our wills, 
and that you would lead and guide us in truth each and every day. God, we praise you that you are a God of kindness and grace and forgiveness, that you have sent Jesus to pay the ultimate price of our rebellion. Lord, may anyone here this morning respond to the truth of your gospel, that though they are against you, you love them and you are patient towards them and you reveal your patience through your patience of your second return. So God, we thank you and we praise you for your love. Be with us this week and may we glorify you and serve you as our King. In Jesus' name, amen.